Thanks for joining us here at Faith Assembly for our weekly podcast. We're so excited you're tuning in this week. To learn more about our church, you can visit us online at myfaithassembly.org. Join us live at our 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5 p.m. services, or connect with us on Facebook. Good evening again. Thank you for being here tonight. Excited that you're here and excited to bring God's word uh, to you this evening. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have your Bibles. So Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn in your Bibles, is where we're going to be specifically verses 1 and 2. And tonight I just have a very simple uh, message to share with you. Very simple message, very easy message for us uh, to grasp together And I hope uh, that God would just speak to our hearts uh, as we look at his word together. Um, But the message is this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's it. In everything, whether you're at the top of the roller coaster or the bottom of the roller coaster, somewhere in between in life, look to Jesus. Right? It's so easy for us at the high moments of our life to get distracted and not look to Jesus. It's so easy in the low moments of our life to feel like we're far away from Jesus. But wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing in life, it's as simple as looking to Jesus. So tonight I I pray that we would look to Jesus, who is the leader and finisher of our faith. Look to Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we're going to do that together tonight. So we'll be looking at that from uh, Hebrews. But as we get into that, just a few thoughts that I've recognized that over the years, uh, so many that I have, right, over the years of my life, I have at least recognized this, that a lot of times my own insecurities lead me to being more passive in my approach to life. My own insecurities prevent me from engaging in behavior that I know is right or the right thing uh, to do. So what we end up doing is we live a passive life because of our insecurities and we blame either other circumstances or situations or other people for the way that we're living life. It's easier to like uh, kind of like I guess kind of push our responsibilities off by living a passive life right? And saying, well, it's not my fault. It's because of this influence or it's because of this situation or circumstance. And so I've recognized that as we take a passive approach or as we're insecure, we often take a passive uh, approach to our lives. And my guess is that this is likely a challenge uh, for many of us. Instead of being action-oriented, in how we live our life, taking life by the horns, uh, so to speak. Instead of being action-oriented, we're more passive, and we blame other circumstances or situations or people. And I can remember one particular situation in my life where I took more of a passive approach than an active approach to doing the right thing. I wanted to impress my older brother and his friends. That's never a good beginning to a story. Anytime where you feel like you need to impress somebody, uh, oftentimes you end up doing something that you shouldn't do. And because I wanted to impress my older brother and his friends, they were outside with their BB guns shooting out streetlights. What a cool thing to do, right? As a young kid, I wanted to be just like my older brother and his friends, so I took my BB gun and I pumped it up well beyond the recommended times that you're required to pump up your BB gun, right? You get to the point where you can barely pump it anymore. And I walk right up to the street light and I shoot it out. 
It makes that big pop sound that a streetlight would make because of how large it is and the gas and all of that. And so simultaneously, as this light bulb explodes from the pinpoint accuracy of my sniper rifle ability with a BB gun, my dad simultaneously, as if he knew what was happening, stepped out of the front door of the house and yelled, Kyle, and I knew I was dead meat. Like I knew I was done. And, and sure enough, I ended up getting the belt for that one, right? That's when you could actually get the belt for things, not just get put in timeout. You know what I mean? Like now you just get put in timeout because otherwise you beat your children. I can say that in this service because it's not being recorded. But the idea is that, that I, I got the belt for that one and it was deserved. I allowed myself to be influenced And instead of engaging in the right behavior, instead of actively saying, no, that's probably not the right thing to do, I passively allowed myself to be led by other people. In this situation, it was my older brother and his friends. There are a lot of moments in my life, and I'm sure in your life as well, growing up where they could be summed up by this statement, right? If if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? I've heard that way too many times in my life uh, as a young kid because I often would just go along with the flow instead of actively choosing what was the right thing to do in the moment. I allowed myself to be persuaded to do the wrong thing. And I wish all of my stories were as innocent. And I say innocent because that probably wasn't all that innocent. Kids are the worst. (laughs) Kids are terrible. Um, But I wish all of my stories were as innocent, if you will, as that story. Because the reality is, is as I grew up and as I got older, I grew up in the church and I learned how to passively just go through the motions. Instead of actively engaging my faith because of my own insecurities as a young kid, but also because of my insecurities about what I believed or who I believed in. And because I was uncertain, I knew that I needed to get by with at least being the good Christian kid in the context and the environment that I grew up. I was a pastor's kid. I I had to learn how to play the game. I had to learn how to put on the face. You know what I mean? And so I passively uh, allowed people to believe that I was this good Christian kid when the reality was is there was decisions I was making and things that I was allowing myself to be led into by other influences or by my own thoughts or my own desires that I I shouldn't have been participating in. So I looked like a good Christian on the outside, but the reality was I probably wasn't a Christian, I probably wasn't a Christian. And instead of me this evening just beating up on myself, I would say that this is actually probably a pretty good depiction and picture of what a lot of churches and Christians' lives look like. They, they think that if they just come to Jesus and put their faith in him, they can go on living life, blending in with the rest of the world, and that they got uh, insurance because at the end of their life, they're going to go to heaven and it's all okay. It's just fine. But we're not called as Christians to live a passive life. We're called to live an active life of faith. So I think it's a pretty good depiction of how we see most of the church. Or, or not, I, don't, I want to be careful not to be harsh, but I think it's true. A lot of times as Christians, we're more passive in going along with emotions and you know, singing the words on the screen and just kind of getting comfortable and not really using the faith that God has given us to do something that would actually make a difference for him. So I want to consider the statement again, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? Now, obviously, this statement is often uttered by our mothers in moments where we make unwise decisions uh, because of the group of friends that we're hanging out with. And I want us now to consider Jesus who tells us that he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, 
right? That's what we read in scripture, that Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We also read in scripture that no greater love have any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself as he's preparing to go to the cross, that he's giving up his life for us and he considers the disciples, his followers, his friends. We also read in scripture as Jesus turns to the disciples and says to them, I no longer call you servant, I call you friend, right? And so as I think about the company that Jesus surrounded himself with and the the friends that he had, I want us to consider this idea of what is Jesus really asking us to do? Are we just passively going along with the traditional sense of what it means to be a Christian and the religious idea of just kind of going to church and yeah, that's just what we do? Or are we actually engaged in our faith? Because if you knew what it meant when you said yes to Jesus, if you knew what you were signing up for, I wonder if we really would have said yes, right? Do you know what it means when, when we say yes to Jesus? Do we know what a life looks like when we say yes to Jesus? We are saying that we are going to die to ourselves. Are you prepared to die to yourself? Are you prepared to give up this life in the hope that one day you might gain it? We're told to daily pick up our cross and to follow him. Are we ready for that? If we say yes to Jesus, are we prepared to say, yes, I'm willing to daily pick up the cross that I'm to bear and live for you? We're also saying that we want to know the power of Christ's resurrection, but also the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. When we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to giving up our lives, following his example, and living our whole life for him. It doesn't sound like it's a passive, just going along with the flow sort of relationship. It's a, man, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus because there's no halfway. We recognize that, right? That there is no halfway, halfway Christian. That's called lukewarm, and Scripture gives us the description that if we're lukewarm, he'd prefer us rather be hot or cold, because if we're lukewarm, he will spew us out of his mouth. And I know that's intense, but it's very loving for us to understand that if we're going to say yes to Jesus, then we're going to say yes with all of our lives, every aspect, every area, holding nothing back. We're going to actively pursue being obedient to the life that he's called us to live, So when we say yes to Jesus, there's no room for passive insecurities, only full-hearted commitment to him and the life that he's called us to live. So I want to look at today in Hebrews what it means for us as believers to live an active and engaged, uh, to be an active and engaged follower of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Man, I pray that God's word would penetrate our hearts, right? Isn't that what his word is meant to do? 
We read that even in scripture itself saying that the, the, the word of God is, is the inspired word of God. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's for the purpose of doing surgery in our lives, for penetrating our hearts, right? That's what the word of God is meant for, that the word of God, when we read it, is illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit and it comes to life and it actually applies to how we live our lives. So I pray that God's word would penetrate our hearts tonight and we would take very seriously um, what he says in the word. So as we get started looking at this passage, I want to point out that insecurity in life, in the life of a believer, leads to a passive walk. Insecurity in the work of Christ will always lead to a passive walk. If you're uncertain of what Christ has done, it's likely that you're not going to put yourself out there and step out of the boat, so to speak. So insecurity in the life of a believer leads to a passive walk. Whereas confidence in the completed work of Christ on the cross leads to an action-filled life. If we believe what we say we believe, there ought to be evidence for that. There ought to be proof of that. Scripture tells us that works without faith is dead. Not by works, right? We don't, we don't work to receive salvation, but because we are saved, we now work. We get to work. So it's not by work so that no man can boast. I understand that. But once we come to salvation in Christ, we're now motivated by that same grace that attracted us to live a grace-filled, active lifestyle in pursuit of being somebody who is going to do something for the kingdom of God. So what I mean is that in the, when I'm talking about this idea that uh, uh, insecurity leads to passivity and, and confidence leads to an action-filled life, what I mean is that when we are not confident of what Christ has done, it will cause us to be inactive in our faith. However, when we're completely assured of what Christ has done, it will lead us to use our faith and lean on it at times of difficulty in our life. That we all go through things, and that's what our faith is for. Our faith is to help us endure the difficulties of this life and to keep us focused when this life becomes more appealing uh, than our eternal life. So what can often take place is that the difficulties of this life or the comfort of this life will distract us and knock the wind out of us and prevent us from running the race that we're called to live. The difficulties of life or the things that are seem good that can become a distraction can actually knock the wind out of us and prevent us from ever finishing this race that we started when we said yes to Jesus. And that's actually the exact metaphor that is used here in this passage that we're looking at. It is that of a runner running a race, and the duration of that race is our lifetime. You realize that, right? It's he who, he who endures to the end that receives salvation. It's not he who raised his hand and prayed a prayer. He who endures to the end receive salvation. So this race of faith is over the course of our entire lives. So again, let's be reminded that insecurity in our life will always lead to passivity, whereas confidence in the work of Christ always leads to faith-filled actions. Verse one starts by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The first point that I want to make tonight as we look at this text is that you and I are in good company. We are in good company. 
I'm so thankful for the men and women in my life who I can look to and say, wow, if they can live their life for Christ their whole life, that inspires me to believe that I can do the same thing. I'm at the point where I, I, I get excited. Hear me out. And I hope you can hear my heart when I say this. I get excited when somebody gives their life to Jesus. I love that. But I get even more excited when somebody lives their whole life for Jesus. It's easy in, a, in an emotional high to make a decision to follow Christ. It's hard to follow through. It's hard to endure. So as we start running this race, we need to recognize that we're in good company. Whenever we see the word therefore in scripture, we should ask ourselves the question, what is it there for? In this case, the writer of Hebrews just got done looking at, in chapter 11, what we often refer to as the hall of faith, right? Not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. We're given this long list of titans and gladiators in scripture with, uh, like, like Abel, who by faith gave a better sacrifice than Cain, and then this list goes on to, to talking about Enoch and Noah and Abraham, who was the father of our faith, right? Abraham, God promised to make him into a great nation, and he kept being faithful to this promise, believing that God was going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but he had no kid yet. He had no, specifically, he had no son, And he would go on later in life to finally have a son. And when he finally has Isaac, God says, sacrifice him. What in the world? No way, God, that's it. You made me a promise. I'm not going to now sacrifice the fulfillment of that promise. But by faith, he took Isaac to the top of a mountain. And he raised the knife to take the life of his only son, only for God to stop him and provide a ram. So Abraham, by faith, it was a credit to him as righteousness, his faith. In, in God was his salvation. Abraham is the father of our faith. It goes on to list Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, the people of Israel, Rahab, and finally the, writers, the writer says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, about David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. We're given just this absolute awesome list of examples of men and women who were faith-filled believers who lived their whole life for God. But it also goes on to explain what each of them had to endure as they ran their individual races, which some of the things that they had to go through were pretty gruesome things, were pretty painful experiences, things that you and I haven't even had to endure. So they stand as an example for you and I. And the point of all of this, the point of this reminder is that you and I are in good company. And the picture that we're given here in this passage is it says, therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, is this picture of being in a coliseum. And the grandstands are filled with this great cloud of witnesses. However, they're not now witnessing you run your race. What they're doing is they're standing as a witness to you of the faith. It's, it's flipped on its head. It's not that they're witnessing you run your, running your race saying, go, you can do this, you got this. No, they're witnesses to us that this faith that they, put, that they believed in, this promise that they believed in is worth it and that if they could do it, we can do it too. If these people can go through what they went through, 
if they can trust in the promises of God going through some of the most difficult life circumstances and situation, and if they can endure, if they can run their race and complete it, we can do the same thing. We can run the race that God has given us. So just like the writer of Hebrews, I want to encourage you that because there are others who have gone before us and who have paved the way for us, we can run this race and we can make it to the end. You can do it. You got it. You got this. God has given you a measure of faith and it's the exact measure of faith that you need to run the race that he's called you to run. We can run this race and we can make it to the end. There are countless witnesses of the faithfulness of God in scripture and we can have complete confidence in him. And a lot of these people hadn't even seen Jesus. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. We can have complete confidence because of those who have gone before us. We can have complete confidence in the work of Christ. Verse one continues by saying, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Once we recognize that we are in good company and that we can be confident in the work of Christ, this passage begins to show us some pitfalls that we need to avoid as we run this race. As we live our life, there are things that we have to watch out for. If we wanna make it, if we wanna endure, if we wanna make it to the end so that we might receive salvation, there are some things that we need to be aware of. It tells us that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So the first thing, after we understand that we're in good company, the thing that I want to also point, is, point out is this idea of this weight of distractions. You know, it's funny here in this passage that it would give us uh, this, this, this kind of picture of, of two different things that can prevent us from finishing the race. It's lay aside every weight and sin. So the first thing I want to look at here in this verse is the weight of distractions, so it's interesting that there's this distinction between the two. So first, we need to recognize and we need to be careful not to be weighed down by good things, right? Sometimes life is so good and sometimes it's easy for us to fall in love with our life here. And it's real easy to think that this life is what it's all about. And if we can just have more things, if I can just have more joy, if I can just have more happiness, I'll be set. But for how long? Because our days here are numbered, right? And so yes, God wants you to have nice things, if you will. But I'm telling you, there are people who attend this church, there are people who are here this evening who recognize that there is nothing that this world has that heaven can't beat. <laughs> there is nothing that this world has that is, that is greater than the promises of heaven. And I pray that we would know that too, that while there are good things on this earth for us to enjoy, that those things pale in comparison to the promises that, he wait, that await us in heaven. Amen? That there are things that are stored up for us in heaven, so let us not get distracted by good things. Perhaps one of the biggest distractions for us is putting more value on this life than on our eternal life. Yes, God wants you to live a victorious life. Yes, God wants you to live your best life now, but not at the expense of your eternity. He's not just concerned with your momentary happiness. Absolutely, God wants you to have joy, but he wants that joy to be found 
in our eternal life so that we might overcome the difficulties of this life. That's what makes it all worth it. There is nothing that we can achieve or arrive to here on earth that compares to the goodness of being in heaven with Jesus Christ. So there are good things that we can pursue that if not careful can become weights as we are running this race that prevent us from completing it. So the first thing that we must avoid is the weight of distraction. Second is the clinginess of sin. The picture that we're given here is actually of runners running a race naked. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but back in the time of the games there in Rome at the Colosseum, when they would run the race, they would literally strip off everything that would potentially hold them back. And I think about it like this, like you try to run as fast as you can run in a pair of jeans. Like you can't. I'm telling you, I have split so many pairs of jeans chasing the students while playing dodgeball. It's crazy. I should probably buy stock in jeans or maybe just buy the right size jeans would help too. But the picture there is given is that sin can cling to us and we need to lay it aside. We need to strip ourselves of sin. So this is difficult to explain and understand, but it's no less true. So while there are relatively good things that can weigh us down, there is also sin that can trip us up that causes us to fall short. It doesn't get specific here about which sin is the sin that so easily entangles us, but it's because we are all susceptible to different sins. So what do you struggle with? What you struggle with might not be what I struggle with. We need to be aware, self-aware enough to recognize that this is what I struggle with. This is my own, this is, this is what I have to deal with. And, and so it, it leaves this open-ended idea that we all struggle with different things that can trip us up and prevent us from running the race that God has called us to live. The important thing is that the effects of sin are all the same. They all cause us to get tripped up and to fall short of completing our race. So no matter what sin you struggle with, be careful that it doesn't prevent you from receiving eternal life. If there is sin in our life, we're not instructed to tolerate it or to make friends with it. We are encouraged from this passage to strip ourselves of it and lay it aside so that we might run the race that is marked out for us. And this is the part of the process that is called developing endurance. It's hard to develop endurance. It's hard to say no to sin. It feels so good in the moment, and especially in our culture, we love momentary gratification, immediate gratification, right? We love that, man. We love caffeine. And there's so many other substitutes you can put in. We just love that quick fix. And and, and what this reveals in us, once again, is this, this insecurity, this passivity, because what happens is we either think that the, the promises of heaven are too far off or they're too good to be true. So I'm going to hold back, and I'm going to enjoy my life a little bit. We need to be careful, and we need to learn how to strip off those things and say, I'm going to give up what feels good now, so that way way I can have what is best later. A man named John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's the truth. Sin kills. It's It's just the truth, and we can't tolerate any amount of sin in our lives. And I understand that there are gonna be moments where we sin and we trip up and we fall. And thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy. 
We can't get caught up in that cycle of shame where we feel like we're not good enough, so we run right back to the same thing that made us feel that way in the first place. We can't keep doing that. We can't keep going there. So I'm so thankful for the grace of God, but let us call it what it is. It's sin, and sin kills. So we need to learn to be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. So no matter if it's a good thing that is distracting to us or sin, we're called to lay it aside so that we might run the race marked out for us. Which brings me to the last part of this verse that we're looking at here, this first verse. Finish the race. Finish the race that is set before you. We read in this passage that let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. A lot of us here at times in our lives have had to endure things that none of us have wanted to endure. We've all had to go through through things that we didn't want to go through. And this is even true of my own life as well. There are experiences and things that I've had to go through that, man, I don't understand why God would allow that. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I was a pastor's kid, and he decided to walk away from the Lord and to abandon the faith, but not just the faith, also his family. And I, 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 to this day, I struggle with that. I struggle with how God could allow that to happen as if my dad didn't have a choice. But it's so easy to blame God at times. It's so easy to turn away from the one who we should turn towards. And that's exactly what the enemy wants, to trip us up, right? And to this day, I have tear-filled conversations with Leah trying to relive the past and understand what happened. How could could this happen? This man who I look up to, this this man who is an example for me, how, how could this happen to him? And at some point, I just need to recognize that this is just my race to run. And what I mean by that is there are things that you have to go through that I may never have to go through. And there are things that I've experienced that you may never have to experience. But in God's word, he says that he gives us each a measure of faith to endure whatever it is we have to experience in this life. We either believe that or it's, it's we either believe that or I don't know what we have to hope, to hope for. We either believe God's word or, or we don't believe that. But God says that Whatever you have to endure, he's given you a measure of faith to endure it. So you need to accept the reality that whatever you're going through in this moment, that's just the race that you have to run. It's, it's not about getting through that so that you might experience nirvana or something or enlightenment in this world. Like you're not going to experience that. Remember, our hope is in heaven, not in this world or in this life. So don't, don't, don't get tripped up thinking that, man, if I can just make it through this, this difficulty, and then you go through it, and you're like, something else comes my way, and I, why, why can I never catch a break? It's like, come on, this is like the real world. Like, maybe by the grace of God, we have a little bit of time to really enjoy our lives before something terrible, like, comes our way, or something difficult happens in our life, or, or maybe we can get distracted, even by the good things of this life, but let us not forget, it's not about this life, It's about foregoing the good things of this life so that we might have the best thing, which is eternal life. So recognize that this is just your race to run. Accept it for what it is, but for the joy that's set before you, which is eternal life, man, let's let's run this race. Let's overcome and let's develop endurance. Verse two says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
the last point that I want to make as we prepare to close here is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, look to Jesus. The question that uh, we often ask as we read through scripture like this is, how is any of this possible? God, how do you expect me to, to look past the offenses that I've experienced? God, how, how do you expect me to overcome this sin that I've been stuck in for decades? God, how, how, how is any of this even possible? And the only answer that I have for you, but the answer that I feel like is sufficient, is that we need to learn to look to Jesus. And it's an active sense of the word. It's, it's an action that we're taking. It's saying, God, there are good things that I have going for me, but when I focus on those things, I realize I've fallen more in love with my life here than my life there. And so I'm gonna look away from these things and I'm going to look to Jesus. Or it's this other idea that we're stuck in sin and, and we can't get out and, and, and we're more in love with our sin than we are with Jesus, and it's looking away and stripping off our sin, and it's looking to Jesus. It's an active idea that we're talking about here. It's not just a quick glance. It's looking away from everything else and learning to look to Jesus. Here the writer of Hebrews reminds us to actively look away from everything else and to focus on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to learn to look to Jesus. The most encouraging news that I can give you this morning is that if you've become distracted by the beauty of this life, if you've fallen in love with this hope that this life is gonna offer everything you've ever desired, if you've become distracted, you need to look to Jesus. If you're stuck in sin, you need to learn to look to Jesus. And if we need to have an example of what it looks like to endure, we need to look to Jesus, because sure, we have so many great examples, right? In scripture and in our own life of people who have lived a faith-filled, action-oriented life, and we can look to them and we can be so thankful that they are such a great example. But here is the thing that absolutely blows my mind, that as I was studying this passage, God reminded me of something so powerful, and this is the thought that, that I felt like, I don't know, it just it, like, it was like a light bulb went off in my mind. It's this idea that God is not asking you to do something that he himself was unwilling to do. Do you realize that? God is not asking you to do something that he himself was unwilling to do. Often as parents, it can be this thought of do as I say and not as I do, Right? We've all said that once or twice before in our life to our kids. I haven't had to yet, but I'm sure I will. <laughs> but not the same way with our Heavenly Father. He is not asking you to do something he was unwilling to do. Because God, the Son of God, left heaven, stepped down out of heaven, and he lived the life that you and I are now being called to live. That is so powerful to me. That he is the author. He started this whole thing. Even when he 
promised Abraham to turn him into a great nation. He wasn't talking just about his, his genetic offspring. He was talking about you and I. I love that. Abraham had no idea that his family would include us, right? Because the completion of that promise was Jesus Christ coming on the scene. I, I'm just so blown away that God is not asking us to do something he was unwilling to do, but he left heaven to step down into our world. And let me remind you of what he had to endure, right? He wasn't born into riches. We're talking about the son of God here. He allowed himself to be born into poverty. He was born in a barn, in a stable, and he lived a life of poverty. He was very meek and very humble. Scripture said he wasn't even, he wasn't even worth, like he wasn't even handsome. That he, there was nothing special about him. He just looked like a regular guy. Like he wasn't even anything to, to look at and to, I don't know, he was just a regular guy. And man, he's, he's God. He could have been born into a palace and he could have been anything that he wanted to be, but he allowed himself to experience what he's called you and I to experience. He's, he's endured what he's calling you and I to endure. He lived the life that he's now calling you and I to live, but in a lot of ways and in many ways, he endured even worse things that he's called us to endure because he endured the cross, which was the most brutal, humiliating, and shameful form of death known to man. The thought that the Son of God was treated as a criminal by those he created is mind-blowing, but that he allowed himself to be treated that way. And for what reason? Why would he allow himself to go through that? What was the purpose of all of that? It's because it says in scripture in this passage that it was for the joy that was set before him. It even goes on to say that he despised the shame of the cross because he knew that one day he would be seated again at the right hand of his heavenly father. And the joy that was set before him is that he'd be restored back to his rightful place, not just so that he could be there, but so that one day you and I might be there as well. That is amazing that God himself is not unwilling to do what he's called you and I to do. Jesus kept his head up so that we might do the same, that we might lay aside distractions and sins, enduring anything that we might keep our head held, our head held high because we are confident that one day we will be where he is. I guess my only hope is that we wouldn't become numb to the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, well, he's just Jesus. Of course. No, he, he made himself vulnerable to the same things that you and I are vulnerable to. But he overcame so that we might overcome. So whatever you're facing, look to Jesus. At the beginning, I asked the question, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you? And I don't want to confuse us with what I'm trying to say. But what I want us to understand is what it is that we're saying yes to. Because saying yes to Jesus is not a passive choice or a passive lifestyle where we're allowed to remain in our insecurities. We're told in scripture that a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. Instead, we are challenged to put our faith into action by laying aside every weight and distraction, by stripping away every sin that tries to hold us back. And we're to do all of this with endurance by focusing on Jesus Christ. That we're to run this race within Jesus, uh, with our eyes on Jesus. And, and just one last thought, 
When I say look to Jesus, it's not a cop-out answer. It's not just a Sunday school answer. As a matter of fact, just a few verses down, we're told in a gentle reminder. I like, it's not really gentle, it's actually pretty forceful, but it's kind of allowing us to remember that in our struggle, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. But do you know who did shed his blood? Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood for us and he doesn't hold it over our head. Well, I did this for you, so you should do it for me. No, he did it for the joy of being united with his heavenly father and the hopes that one day we would be there with him. So the question I have for us is that Jesus, who calls himself our friend, gave his life for us. Will we in return, for the joy that is set before us, give our life to him?